1 Peter chapter 1 Peter an apostle of Christ Jesus to God's elect strangers in the world scattered through Pontus Galatia Cappadocia Asia and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thanks be to God. Well, after the uh, theme of this morning's sermon, if you were here, was about uh, depression... Um, it's good to focus on inexpressible joy, because this evening is a celebration. It's a joyful occasion, and uh, for now, hopefully it will be a day that uh, she looks back on with uh, very fond memories for years to come. But as with a, a wedding day that is a celebration of a couple coming together and starting a new life together, a life that will be full of ups and downs and uh, encouragements, and discouragements. A baptism marks the start of a, a new life, a new life with Jesus. A life that also have ups and downs, trials and sufferings, but will be marked by joy. What Peter describes in this passage as an inexpressible and glorious joy. It's inexpressible because words cannot fully describe this, this inner joy that we feel as Christians. The first hymn we sang this evening was Over a Thousand Tongues to Sing, My Great Redeemer's Praise. And not only can I not describe this this joy fully, I cannot express my praise to God for it fully. But what is the reason for this joy in a believer? Well, the answer is there in verse 9, where it says, For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's just have a look for a minute at the goal of our faith. It is good to have goals. Goals give our life purpose and meaning. Without them, we will drift sort of aimlessly. Uh, We'll be taken along by different people, different things, and uh, often end up somewhere we don't really want to to go. But faith has a goal. It says here, and a Christian faith is not just that, that God exists, not just that Jesus was the Son of God, if that's all it was, then when we die and we meet him, 
all we would be able to say was, well, I told you, he exists. But Christian faith is a belief that Jesus' death and resurrection will achieve my salvation. Salvation, it says here, is the goal of our faith. Now, of course, that begs the question, what do you mean exactly by salvation? Salvation is saving, it is rescuing. But rescuing from what, you might say? What do I need to be rescued from? Well, the Bible tells us we all need to be rescued from God's judgment. Now, it's funny that in our society, we don't really like to talk about uh, judgment. We talk about justice a lot. Um, this week, we saw the conviction of uh, a man accused of the murder of uh, Millie Dowler, which you may have read about in the newspapers. And Millie Dowler's mother um, saying, at last, the man responsible for the cruel murder of our darling daughter so many years ago has been found guilty. And then she went on to complain about what we call the justice system for the way they were treated in the court case. She had a clear sense of justice. We're all made with that sense of justice, aren't we? Because the God who made us is a God of justice. So then why do we have a problem with the exercise of God's justice, which is really what judgment is all about? Well, maybe it's because we feel, well, actually we don't really deserve to be put on trial. We don't deserve to be put in the dock. We're, you know, we're, we're pretty decent people at the end of the day. We've led good lives. But not people who are worse than we are. But then when you think about it, have you ever told a, a little lie? Maybe distorted the truth a little bit to get out of trouble? To maybe just present yourself in a way where you would come across better than you, you really are. Are the things you've said or done or thought that if someone had put on your Facebook page for everybody to read would make you feel pretty, pretty ashamed? Ultimately, we are told that the, we have two ways to live. We can choose to live God's way to follow him, allow him to rule our lives, or we can choose to lead our lives our own way, which is the natural uh, human tendency. And that is what we call sin. And when we rule our own lives our way, one of the things that is most important to us um, for our joy is what others think of us. How many uh, comments we received that have um, made us feel good, that have maybe boosted our ego a little bit. Maybe how many hugs we got at school in the, uh, in the break time. The minister's conference we went to this, uh, this week, uh, Jeff and Paddy, um, one of the speakers there, Tim Keller, challenged us all as ministers about our desire for affirmation, the way it is often expressed through overwork. He asked ministers, you know, why do you overwork? It's obviously not because of the money or the uh, career prospects. Isn't it to enhance your sense of self-worth, to feel valued and needed? And then he said it's just as much an idol as money. To follow God is to, to live in a different way, is to find joy in something else, is to find joy in his love for us. Not to feel that we have to prove ourselves to, to earn that love. He's showed us that love. We just need to accept it as a gift. It was a shame that the um, Dads and Lads camp on Friday night was, uh, was cancelled, but a good call, I think, given the amount of rain on Friday night. Compensation was um, being able to, to watch Glastonbury on TV and see uh, U2 in concert. And you forget just how many, I don't know how many U2 fans there are here this evening, but you forget just how many of their songs do have uh, a Christian message. Um, 
for example, the song Vertigo, I hadn't picked up on this one before, is, is based on the episode when Jesus was taken to a very high mountain, hence Vertigo, where Satan showed him everything and said, you can have all this if you bow down and worship me. And what did Satan say to, what did Jesus say to Satan? He said, away from me, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. By way of an encore, uh, you two sang a song uh, called Moment of Surrender. And uh, it's interesting that Bono added these two lines. They're not normally in that. But he added these two lines I picked up. He said, don't lose your faith in the crowd. And then he said, don't put your faith in the crowd. That moment of surrender is the moment we ignore what the crowd think and put our trust in Jesus. The moment we realise that we can do nothing to prove our innocence before a perfectly just God. Not even the best lawyers will be able to prove our innocence. And it's the moment when we say to Jesus, I realise that you have taken the punishment that I should take so that I can be set free, so that I can be saved, so that I no longer need to fear that judgment. That is what salvation is about. No longer needing to fear judgment. We can't avoid judgment. It will happen to all of us. The Bible says man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. But we can face that judgment without fear and with great confidence that Jesus will stand in our place before the Father and say to him, he can go free. I've taken his punishment. He's one of mine. And what Naomi is saying tonight is, I trust that Jesus died for me so that I can be saved from that. And that is what gives her, that's what it gives us who've taken that same step, an inexpressible and glorious joy. That is what it's about. But what this passage also says that Christians have is a living hope. Look at verse 3 there, if you've got a Bible open to, open in front of you, it says, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. I wonder what you hope for most. I guess... uh, for any young people here this evening who are at school, it's probably uh, good exam results, having maybe just uh, done quite a bit of hard work and sat through those awful exams. You're hoping that you did well. Most of us uh, who are British here, apart from the old traitor, mentioning no names like Helen Walker, will be hoping that Andy Murray will win Wimbledon. Hope is wanting something to happen in a certain way, isn't it? But the thing with hope is that the likelihood of it turning out as we want it to is often based on something else. You know, if you did no revision for your exams, then you know, your hope of doing well is probably based on the examiner being pretty generous. If you worked hard, then your hope is based on the fact that you were well prepared and you should do well. And the Christian hope, a hope that there is something much better than this life when we die is based on something else. It is described as a sure and certain hope in the Bible. It's not a random hope, because it's based, have a look there on verse 3, it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that is an historical fact. There were 500 eyewitnesses who saw him after his death. There was a, a group of followers who later became known as Christians, who, after Jesus' death, were afraid for their lives, But on seeing him alive, they became so bold that they were prepared to do anything for him, to die for him. 
and many of them did. Witnesses having seen Jesus overcome death, having seen him in his new resurrection body, that gives us a sure and certain hope that for us death also is not the end, that we too will receive such bodies and be with him forever. And what if you're not a Christian here this evening? What, what is it that you hope for? Is your hope focused just on this world? That you will get the things that you want, that you, you desire? Or do you have a, a hope for the life to come? And if so, what is that based on? Is it a, a feeling, a sort of impulse, or is it something concrete? Because for the Christian, there is a living hope, and it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, there's a living hope. There's also an inheritance, we're told here, kept in heaven. Uh, we've read how God in his mercy has given us new birth into a living hope. But it says here also that he's given us new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance is something that becomes ours at the death of somebody. It's passed on to us. When Jesus died, we received an inheritance. But in the same way that uh, when a, somebody dies and leaves something for a child, it's kept in trust for them until they're of an age where they're mature enough to receive the, the full inheritance. In many ways, the same is true for us as Christians, because our inheritance is kept in heaven. It's kept for us there. With earthly inheritances that are put in trust, there's uh, always a danger that um, they're worthless by the time we get to receive them. Maybe if they're invested in something like um, the Greek stock market, the value might reduce dramatically. Or alternatively, your parents may just go skiing in their retirement, which I don't mean they'll be off to the slopes, but uh, skiing is the new acronym for spending the kids' inheritance. The inheritance that has been put in trust for Christians is secure. We're promised here that it will never perish, it will never spoil it will never fade. What is that inheritance? Well, it's the promise of a new life, a life that will last forever, a life in a new universe, a universe that will be perfect just as this one once was before sin entered it. In that new one, there will be no more illness or sin, there will be no death, no suffering, no pain. Hallelujah. And we will be enjoying new resurrection bodies that won't wear out that are similar to these, but but different. And above all, it will be in the presence of God himself. How how brilliant can that be? It's such an awesome thought that surely nobody would actually decline it if they were offered that that prospect. So I guess the only reason someone might not want it is maybe because they're just not convinced it is true. This is not a serious offer that you're giving me here. And if that is you, can I just encourage you to read the story of Jesus in the Bible? Just see how impressive this person was and how much he can rely on the promises he gives us in his word. You might not think it can be true alternatively. You may be thinking, well, that stuff is all just in the future. I'm not ready for that yet. I'm just concentrating on this life. It's hard enough getting through this life, let alone thinking about the life to come. How does your Christian faith, if you're a Christian, affect the way you live in this life? Well, what it doesn't do as the Bible tells us, is promise that our life will be without problems. But what it does do is promise that you will have a joy that overcomes your suffering. 
Have a look down at verse 6 there in front of you. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. As I mentioned at the beginning, the two sermon titles today are such a contrast. This morning was facing depression. This evening it is an expressible joy. How do those two possibly fit together? Surely it's either joy or it's depression. You can't have both. Well, without wanting to repeat uh, this morning's sermon, as Christians we will still have trials like anybody else. Depression may be one of them. Other illness or disability may be be one of them. It may be prolonged unemployment. It may be personal conflict. And it may be the one that we all fear, the grief following the death of someone very close to us. The American pastor Paul Tripp begins his book, A Shelter in the Time of Storm, a sort of uh, exposition of Psalm 27. He begins it with these words. He says, it was the call no parent ever wants to get. Our daughter had been walking down the street in Philadelphia when a drunk and unlicensed driver careened onto the sidewalk and crushed her against a wall. It was the beginning of many, many months of travail. He puts in brackets, by God's grace, she's now doing very well. He carries on, there are many mysteries to this moment in our lives that we will never solve. Yet there are a few things that we know for sure. We really do live in a fallen world. We haven't been given a ticket out of the brokenness of this world simply because we are the children of God. What happened to our daughter was a horrible injustice, followed by day upon day of remarkable pain. The world we live in simply is not operating the way God intended. There's a second thing we know for sure. There is a God of awesome grace who meets his children in moments of darkness and difficulty. And he is worth running to. He is worth waiting for. He brings rest when it seems like there is no rest to be found. But there is a third thing. You and I, we're just not hardwired to make our way through this fallen world on our own. We were meant to exist with eyes filled with the beauty of his presence and hearts at rest in the lap of his goodness. This is what I love about the Psalms. They put difficulty and hope together in the tension of hardship and grace That is the life of everyone this side of eternity. Amazing words. Paul Tripp, a shelter in the time of storm. There are many trials we may have to face in this life that will make us sad or make us cry, that will drive us to despair and depression. But underneath all that pain for the Christian, there is an inner joy and peace that our eternal future is secure. And even if that pain lasts a whole lifetime, In the context of eternity, that is still, as it says here, a little while. So as we pray for Naomi this evening, we're not praying that she will be spared pain in her life. We don't really want her to experience that pain. But we're praying, as it says here, that her faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And that's my prayer for all of you tonight. And hopefully our prayer for each other.